Please Leave podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. I studied her through the two-way glass before entering the room where she sat. So slumped over, she more resembled a discarded gym bag than a 33-year-old woman. She was so still. The gentle rise and fall of the slender shoulder that had been exposed when her gown slipped loose was my only indication she was alive and breathing. I knew she'd been beautiful because I'd seen photos of her before everything had started. But I took a deep breath and braced myself for what I'd see when I opened the heavy door, and she turned my way. As the door slammed shut, she turned her face a quarter of the way, just enough for me to see the elegant peak of her left cheekbone, but hesitated before she'd completed the turn. Hi, Rachel. I started in my least threatening but still professional voice. I'm Dr. Spencer. Would it be okay if we talked for a bit? She nodded almost imperceptibly, then completed the turn toward me, revealing her haphazard mess of a face. There was a lumpy stretch of skin where her right eye had been, and I could just barely see the left as it peered at me wetly from under the deflated remnants of her eyelid. They had managed to reconnect her jaw after seven surgeries, but a total severance requires so much repair in the way of nerve reconnection and skin grafts that it jutted out awkwardly, and looked like it had been packed with gravel. She attempted a polite, painful-looking smile, and I returned it as I slid into the chair across from her and set my notepad lightly on the table in front of me. Have you been feeling all right? She shrugged and pulled the gown back over her left shoulder, which then shifted to expose the right. Have you been sleeping? She shook her head, and I opened my pad to make a note to prescribe trazodone to help her sleep. I'll have them bring you something that'll help. Take half a tablet, and it shouldn't make you feel drowsy the next day, okay? She nodded and straightened up slightly. A good sign. You've been through a lot, and so sleep is important to help you heal. And so is talking, which is why I'm here. Her watery eye darted across my face, and I maintained contact as I widened my smile in a show of solidarity. You're from Pennsylvania originally, is that right? Her jaw unhinged audibly, and her voice was surprisingly lovely in contrast with her face. She cleared her throat and responded. Yes, near Bethlehem. I consulted my notepad for a moment. You lived in California for 14 years and then moved back two and a half years ago? We did, she confirmed, remembering. After my uncle left us the house. Your uncle? I glanced at my notes to find the name. Your uncle Aaron? She nodded. And the house you're referring to is your family estate in Pottstown? Yes, was supposed to go to my brother Caleb, but he died in a car accident when he was 20. 
I'm so sorry for your loss. She smiled tightly to indicate she wanted to change the subject. So the family home was left to you, and you moved back to live in it. She paused for a moment before answering, and a tear spilled over the bulbous edge of her lower eyelid. I wasn't really ready to leave California, but Dan was excited to live in the country, and in that house. She swiped at the tear and cleared her voice again. <clears throat> he grew up in a tiny house in Riverside, so he wanted to live on all that land. And of course he worked in old buildings. It's what he did, so we moved back. Memories of happier times seemed to comfort her, so I took the opportunity to keep her talking. Did he like living in the home? Loved it. The disfiguration of her jaw made it impossible for her to smile broadly, but she lit up when she said the words and continued without my prompting. He even liked all of my family's weird furniture. He'd never owned anything that was made before the 70s, so he couldn't get over how long some of it had been in my family. I bought new chairs and a sofa, and updated the curtains and part of the kitchen so we didn't feel like we were living in a museum, but I'd always find him in my grandfather's library, studying something my grandfather's father had brought with him from Germany. Or maybe it was my grandfather's father's father? I can never remember. Dan would be able to remember. She darkened slightly, and I interjected to bring her back. And you were able to keep working after the move? I was. She turned her head thoughtfully, and I caught a glimpse of her previous beauty. I was a blogger. An early adopter. I started blogging in, like, 2008, so I got in early. And by the time we moved, I was doing it full-time. That's a huge accomplishment. I said sincerely, thinking back to all of my friends and exes who had started, and almost immediately abandoned blogs and other social media sites over the years. She sighed, tenderly, and visibly softened under the warmth of my compliment. The move was the best thing that happened to the blog. I posted photos of the house and the remodel. You know how it was back then. I'd set up the camera on the oak grove and pose with a cup of coffee and an old quilt around my shoulders, and my readers absolutely ate it up. I was always laughing. Like, did they think a professional photographer had wandered onto my property and captured the candid moment? But it didn't matter. They loved it, and I loved doing it. And there were millions of things to write about and photograph in that old house. And what did Dan do? Well, it was perfect, because my second cousin decided he wanted to restore an historic family home that had also been used as a government building in Lancaster when it was still the capital, and I saw his posts about it on Facebook, so Dan reached out and was hired onto the crew. Dan was a preservationist, correct? She shifted in her chair, and I felt her mood slip a bit, so I offered a little more to keep the conversation flowing. I read that he was quite good at it. He was amazing. Her husband relaxed her, and she allowed herself to drift back into the memories. His dad and grandpa both worked in construction, but he was a genius. And I'm serious when I say that. It's not hyperbole. He was an actual genius when it came to woodworking and restoration. She blushed slightly as she said it. 
I'd pretend I was jealous when I'd find him caressing some old banister he was patching, or sprawled out on his stomach replacing the inlay in a wood floor. But I kind of was jealous, if I'm being honest. I swear he could communicate with that stuff. He could hear things I couldn't, and I was always a little jealous that I wasn't a part of it. She swiped at a new tear and shifted her tone to clarify. But I was so proud of him. So proud of him. And he loved our house, my God. He was in heaven living there. He wouldn't let me touch anything original as I was updating things. Not even the old faucets that had separate hot and cold taps. I had to fill my hands with one and then shift it to the other to wash my face. It was such a pain in the ass, but he refused. He said he'd divorce me if I swapped them with something modern, and I believed him. Did he like his job in Lancaster? He loved it. It was a big deal for Dan. A really big deal. They brought him in from the beginning with two other guys to work on all of the historic restoration, and the contract was for three years, so he didn't have to think about finding his next job for once. He was having so much fun working on all of the intricate details of the place. He was so happy. I can't help but wonder what would have happened if he hadn't found it. She trailed off as the fog of dissociation started to creep over her face, so I changed the subject slightly to pull her back. When did Dan start the job? Um, we moved here in April, and he didn't start until September, which was amazing because it gave us the summer to settle in. We cleared out my grandma's old flower beds and tried to grow a garden, but we only managed to produce two sad tomatoes and thousands of green beans. <laughs> she laughed loudly, and the sound seemed to animate her further. I'm not kidding. She leaned over the table like she was chatting with a girlfriend. We had thousands and thousands of green beans and nothing else. No peppers or peas, just green beans for weeks and weeks. And we don't even like green beans, but we ate them because we felt like we should. <laughs> she let out another deep laugh and settled back in her chair to savor the moment. <sighs> but he was excited to start work when the time came. And I was excited to have the house to myself so I could focus on my writing. And everything was great for the first year. Everything was amazing, actually. The smile lingered in her eye for a moment more, then faltered and fell away. I held my breath, hoping she'd walk us through what happened next without my having to prod her. We sat in heavy silence for several seconds until she sighed, resigned that she'd have to tell that part of the story eventually, and began to share what we now know was the beginning of the end. They'd been working on the renovation for almost a year when they opened up the north wall and started finding things. Her thin fingers tugged at the neck of her gown nervously, then found a thick strand of her hair to twirl while she continued. He was so excited when he came home that first day. He and another guy named Rick found some pieces of wood with cloth tied to it first, then some old tins and other pieces of metal, and they assumed the original owners had used the walls for some kind of lazy trash disposal, but then they found an iron frying pan in perfect condition, and so started to doubt their hypothesis. Her hands moved to twist the edge of her gown, and I was captivated by the movement of the fabric for a moment as she wrung it from side to side. 
Dan was from the West Coast, you know, so he didn't know that white people did magic back then too. Not to mention, there weren't a lot of buildings old enough to find those old relics where he grew up, so it was all new to him. They found the chicken skulls and feet at the end of the day, and he was practically vibrating when he got home because he was so excited to tell me about all of it. So, I think he was a little hurt when I reacted the way I did. I watched as her grip tightened around the cloth, and I gently asked what her reaction had been to keep her in the moment. I think I was very matter-of-fact. Really calm, you know? I'd been hearing about the powwow magic my whole life, especially from my dad's side of the family. So it never dawned on me that people didn't know about it in other parts of the country. Dan was like, And we found all these chicken skulls. There were at least five of them, and some of them were sewn up in cloth. And I was like, Yeah, that's Brokeri, before he even finished his sentence. She paused and started to giggle, almost uncontrollably, and I caught a glimpse of the carefree person she'd been in her previous life. At first he thought I'd said broccoli, and I was like, no, the Browkerai, the Pennsylvania Dutch powwow magic, and I swear his jaw almost hit the floor. I started pointing at all the things in the room that my family had used for powwowing, like the red chair I got yelled at for sitting in because it was only used for rituals, or the broom over the doorway, which Dan thought was there as a design choice and had no idea it had been there for decades to keep evil spirits out of the house. His mind was blown. For the next week, he'd ask me 20 times a day if some random thing in the house was used in a spell or was just an antique. One day, he came into my office, carrying a dried-up potato he found on the ground in the pantry with his eyes all wide. I almost peed my pants as I told him it had probably fallen out of the bag I'd bought a couple of months ago and wasn't some magical relic from the late 1700s. Tears sprung to her eye as she erupted into another giggle fit, and I couldn't help but smile along with her. He was fascinated by all of it. But I think he was also a little freaked out. We didn't practice any kind of religion, but he was raised Catholic, so I think it spooked him out a little, even though I explained that Browkerai was based in Christianity. But when I think about it, I think probably that spooked him out even more. Because you know how Christians and Catholics are with each other. We sat in silence again, and it was hard to resist fidgeting along with her as we anticipated the next part of her story. After a few beats, she dropped the corner of the gown, smoothed it out the best she could, and collected herself before continuing. And it was kind of fun and funny for a few weeks. But then they found the... Her voice broke, and her eye found mine so she could search my gaze for the strength to continue. And, um... Then they found the baby. She pushed the rest of the story out quickly before she could lose her nerve. He was raging when he came home that day. I'd never seen him like that. He was so upset, shouting and almost crying that they'd found the skeleton of a baby in the wall wrapped in red string and newspaper from the 1770s. He was going on and on about how they'd shown the chickens more respect by burying them in cloth, and how this was no kind of Christian magic, and it was evil. And he started gathering up all of the things my family had used for powwowing, and smashed and broke all of it. Even the broom over the door that my dad told me our ancestors had brought over from Germany, and had been the first thing they'd hung in the house. 
she broke my gaze, her face broken and mournful, and there were so many questions I wanted to ask, but I stayed silent and let her continue in her own time. I understood why he did it, and his happiness and safety were more important to me than some dusty relics, so I didn't push that hard to defend our traditions, but it did make me sad. I didn't care about any of the stuff when I was little. I thought it was old-fashioned and out of touch, but I can remember my great-grandmother rubbing potatoes on warts to remove them or doing elaborate rituals when we got sick, and my grandpa would put out fires with a plate as a party trick, and it never really occurred to me that those traditions were mine, a part of who I am and where I come from, until they were in pieces on the ground. <sighs> Rachel sighed heavily and I almost suggested we end the session for the day when I noticed she was trembling. But her voice was strong and full of resolve when she started speaking again. We stayed up half the night that night, talking about why they had put the baby in the wall, like what was so important that they'd cast a spell that required a human sacrifice. I'd only ever heard of our little folk charm and rituals, never anything near as dark as that, and we both wanted to learn more. But then all of this happened. She waved a hand over her face to indicate the mutilation of her eyes and jaw, then wrapped both arms around her midsection to steady her tremors. When we woke up the next day, everything was normal. And it was a Saturday, so Dan got a break from having to deal with the fact that he was working on a burial site for a couple of days. He'd calmed down quite a bit, and even apologized for destroying all the powwow stuff, and we spent the day in Lehigh Valley to take our mind off of things. It was really nice that day, and I'm so glad we have that last memory of him because our life was over after that. By the time we got home, my eyes had swollen up and were really red and itchy. I thought I was having an allergic reaction to the muscles we'd shared for dinner, so I took a couple of Benadryl, put a hot compress on them, and went to bed. And then I woke up. And then I woke up. Her voice broke again, and her hands rested near her neck as she made a sound somewhere in between a sob and a gasp. Do you need to take a break? I asked, concerned that she was losing control. No, I am okay. She responded quickly and took several deep breaths. It feels good to talk about it. It's just a lot. You're doing great. Just let me know if it becomes too much. I'm here to keep you healthy. That's the number one priority, so don't be afraid to take a break if you need one. Thank you. She uncapped the water bottle on the table next to her and took a long drink before settling back in her chair and nodding that she was ready to continue. What happened when you woke up? I prodded gently. When I woke up, it felt like someone had filled my eye sockets with acid. They were on fire, I'd never felt pain like that in my life, and when I reached for the washcloth that I'd fallen asleep with over my eyes, it was covered in crusty stuff and stuck to my face. I couldn't get it off at all. It hurt to pull at it, and I shouted for Dan to wake up to help me, and he bolted up, all freaked out because I was hitting him and calling his name. I told him I needed help getting to the sink in the bathroom, so he jumped out of bed, and I heard a crack, and then heard him fall, and then he just started screaming and screaming. Rachel's tears were falling freely and she pressed her hand to her mouth after the mention of her husband's last moments. 
I've never heard anything like it. And I was calling out to him, but he just kept screaming. And so I tried to get out of the bed, and I was still calling his name and asking him what was wrong. And right in the middle of saying something, my, my jaw just... She cradled her jaw protectively with one hand and cleared her throat before finishing. <clears throat> my jaw just fell off. It fell completely off my face and hit the floor with a thud, and I remember thinking it sounded like my phone when I drop it. <laughs> she laughed an exasperated laugh. It is, isn't it funny what our mind can conjure at a moment like that? My eyes were rotting out of my head. My husband was screaming in agony. My jaw had just cracked off and fallen free from my face. And I was thinking about the sound my phone made when it hit the hardwood floor of the house. She shook her head to clear the memory, and we resumed eye contact so she could continue. I obviously couldn't talk and didn't know what else to do, so I dialed 911 and put it on speaker, hoping they could trace the call, which they could, thank God, because I blacked out after that. When I woke up, I was here, and they put me back together the best they could. Her hand made another pass over her mangled face, and she attempted a grateful smile for the work the doctors had done to repair her jaw and salvage her sight. Do you know how long you were under? I asked tentatively, knowing I was entering dangerous territory with my questioning. Her chest heaved with a deep sigh, and she cocked her head to think back. <sighs> well, they said I'd been in a coma for three months. And I know they're telling me the truth, because when I woke up, there was also this. She pushed back her chair and raised up her midsection so that her very swollen belly was visible over the edge of the table for a moment. When I woke up, I was also around three months pregnant, which is a pretty damn accurate marker of time. She smiled weakly at her joke as her tears fell steadily down her neck and chest. And they told me that Dan was gone. I rose to try to comfort her as she broke into open sobs, but she held up a hand for me to give her a moment, so I settled back into my seat to wait while she grieved her dead husband for a few minutes. Once she'd collected herself enough to go on, she raised her head slowly and explained. The doctors told me that Dan had contracted some sort of horribly aggressive staph infection from the bones they'd found in the walls, and he'd given it to me, which is what attacked my eyes and jaw. Dan had it longer than I had, but we didn't know it, or he didn't tell me he wasn't feeling well. And by the time we woke up that morning, it had basically destroyed all of his vital organs and weakened his bones, and he was dead before we even got to the hospital. She cried silently for a few more minutes and didn't pull away when I rested my hand on her arm in a weak attempt to offer comfort. But at least I have the baby. She said eventually and wrapped her arms around the bulge in her abdomen. And the doctors insisted I stay here until she's born so they can monitor my health, which I'm so grateful for. She's the only thing that matters now. 
A calm fell over her as she stroked her stomach and began to hum quietly to her unborn baby. I was abundantly aware of how important it was for her to believe the stories that had been fabricated to keep her and the baby safe, but I almost broke in that moment. The repercussions of her learning the truth would be catastrophic, but I couldn't help but be moved by her love for her child and how much that child represented in her husband's absence. But she couldn't know. Too much depended on it. Everything depended on it, really. She couldn't know that Braukurai was a massively watered-down version of an ancient, dark, and extremely powerful magic that the first settlers picked up somewhere between the old country and our eastern shores, and has never been shared outside of a handful of members of the handful of families who carried it here. She couldn't know that the same magic had killed Dan when he'd challenged it, and she had lost her sight and speech when she'd watched and failed to defend it. She couldn't know that our country was on the brink of total collapse because a demolition worker misread the schematics and opened the wrong wall while the man who was there to protect the magic was taking a bathroom break. She couldn't know that the power grids in several major cities had started to fail three weeks after Dan removed the baby's remains from that wall, or that the building they'd been taken from had been a critical meeting place during the founding of the United States. She couldn't know that a gas tanker exploded in Cove Point, Maryland a couple of weeks after that, followed by a long series of other disasters on U.S. soil, including an impending depression as several of the corporations that control the vast majority of the economy had collapsed in quick succession. She couldn't know that the baby that Dan found wasn't the only one that had been sacrificed to hex our enemies and protect the early and ongoing colonies of the United States. And she certainly couldn't know that the baby they'd removed had been her very distant cousin, and so must be replaced by a baby in her bloodline if the country is going to survive. The magic requires the baby to reach full term, so we've outfitted this bunker to look and feel like a normal hospital to keep them safe in the meantime. The other keepers and I are grateful that everything played out the way it did to give us enough time to fabricate our ruse. Rachel must remain calm and healthy so the baby is born. We just hope and pray the country can hang on until that day, too. Kieran Regan. For more stories that haunt as well as a behind the scenes look at what we do and why we do it, you can join our Patreon at Patreon slash Please Leave Pod. You can follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at Please Leave Pod. Our email is Please Leave Pod at gmail.com and our website is Please Leave Pod.com. This has been a Please Leave Media production.